Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal series, including five wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise! The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years! The Wise Woman Way, and Susan's latest book, Down There, Sexual and Reproductive Health, The Wise Woman Way. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at the Wise Woman University. But you can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, Justine, and welcome, Rebecca. Hello, Susan. How are you this evening? Oh, quite wonderful. The moon is so full, and it is shining so brightly. It is just amazingly beautiful. I think we're at one of those um, times when the moon is very near to the earth. Yeah, I heard that it's the closest it'll be until 2026, so... So very close. very close. It looks like it. Mm-hmm. Driving mm-hmm. home from my singing lesson as it was rising, and just really, I mean, it looked so big. The rising moon yeah, always it's not looks quite here, up. but yeah, this one just looked really 
stunningly big. It's going to be rising as we're talking, though, in the window I'm looking out of right now. So <laughs> I'm excited right. to see it. And I was trying to remember, is there is the eclipse now or was it last month? I think it was last month. It was last month, yeah. Last I think month, it was yeah. the day before Martin Luther King Day and just an interesting time because there was a lot of political controversy going on at that time and just a lot of stuff I was reading about and it was like, whoa, this, you know, like the eclipses are really auspicious times too. Like in, you know, Vedic astrology and stuff, they say, you know, stay inside during the eclipses because they're actually like a, a bad luck. But, oh, wow. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And and then really what is bad luck? I was um, reading an article in Time magazine that was so moving to me. And it's not in uh, this week's, it was the, the February 4th issue. And uh, it's... Um, an essay written by a woman entitled, Why My Medical Crisis Wasn't Taken Seriously. Hmm. And um, basically, she says that um, what I remember most about the ordeal, this is written by uh, Tressie McMillan Cottam, what I remember most about the ordeal groggy from trauma and pain and narcotics is how nothing about who I was in any other context mattered. In the medical context, it was assumed I was incompetent. Although I spoke in the way one might expect someone with a lot of formal education to speak, I was incompetent. I had health insurance, but I was incompetent. I was married. I was incompetent. All of my status characteristics screamed competent, but nothing could shut down what my blackness screamed when I walked into that medical setting. The prevalent Mm. perception of black women as unruly bodies and incompetent caretakers unrules even the stereotype that we are superhuman Yeah, there's a lot of work being done right now around um And let me just say, like Shepard, sorry, there's like a, a long part I don't want to read. What so many black women know is what I learned as I sat at the end of a hallway with my dead baby in my arms. The networks of capital, mm-hmm. be they polities or organizations, work most efficiently when your lowest status characteristic is assumed. And once those gears are in motion, you can never be competent enough to save your own life. And mm-hmm. one of the things that moves me to read this right now is that our guest this evening is Ebony Janice Moore, who is a womanist scholar and an activist who's doing specific work in women's body ownership as a justice issue. Yeah, such important work. Yeah. Very, very important work. Um, I'm very excited that she's going to be with us at 9 o'clock tonight. I hope you all stay tuned to hear what she has to say. Um, It's going to be really vital and really important. And that view from the first person that I read from by Tressie McMillan Cottam from 
Time magazine, February 4th through the 11th issue. <clears throat> and then, other than that, what? My supermarket had hyacinths in bud for sale. And, you know, ever since, knowing Julian de Berkeley-Levy, then every spring I just find when the hyacinths are there for sale, I think of her so much and how much she loved the hyacinths. And I buy one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So sitting I here looking at this, I can't just... right, this beautiful <laughs> pink hyacinth. And it was great. It had like three stalks of flower buds, which have bloomed, and then three more have come up. It's been quite the nice show. Love you, Juliet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, looks like we do have a few callers with their hands raised, and I'll just remind the callers to press one. And I also want to remind people that we are continuing to celebrate 35 years of shamanic apprentices in the e-zine and getting fun letters from past apprentices. And um, what else? Work is going super well on the book. And Justine and I did finish the the filming of a new video course. I don't know how long it will be before it's out because, of course, there's always the post-production work to do. And I guess those are like the big things um, going on for me. What's going on for you? Um, I did a little – I didn't mention it on here. I should have, but I just uh, did a give, giveaway for a, a herb basket that I made that was that finished wrapped up today on the full moon. So I just uh, – my son and I just made a little video as well and, like, posted it on Instagram with the winner. And so that was pretty fun to have him involved. And we've been kind of counting down the days because he got to be the one that picked the winner. So that was ah! fun. And ah. Yeah. Yeah. And um, just got to get out on a nice hike today and haven't been taking so much time to be taking care of myself this past week. So I was, like, anxious to get outside and do some self-care and eat some good food and, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Ah, wonderful. Yeah. And thank you for moderating last night, Mary Kathleen Rose. And I did a teleseminar about her wonderful uh, type of massage called Comfort Touch. And uh, I find it just so rewarding and nourishing to um, be with her and to to have her full-hearted take on taking care of people. Yeah, I really want to learn some more about Comfort Touch now. It's I did this, uh, had a massage when I was at Brighton Bush last time, and the woman called it Smart Touch, where she would um, kind of like lean into places where there was tension being held and kind of let the muscle work around it. And so it was like very low impact massage, but it kind of reminded me of what she was doing. And that was the first time I ever had had a massage like that. And it, it was so relieving to my body. It was, I was had such an easier time like recovering from it. And I had more energy throughout the day than I typically would with the massage. So just interesting that that, that she showed up on the teleseminar 
pretty much in the same time frame that I had that massage and really appreciated that approach to massage. Yes, and I love her banner, which says, no pain, it shouldn't hurt. Yeah. Which is, yeah. Which is you I, know, so much a banner of the wise woman tradition. And mm-hmm. not in the heroic tradition, which says outright, no pain, no gain. And then you say, no pleasure, no treasure. I love that so much. Right, no pleasure, no treasure. Yeah. Hey, come on. <laughs> it's okay. You know, you don't have to hurt yourself to be well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you weren't there to listen to uh, Mary Kathleen Rose and I last night, there is a recording, yes? Yeah, there's a recording, and you can find it by going to the Wise Woman Bookshop Okay. And, yeah. Yeah. Mhm. And that's just the first of a Very whole series of tele- teleseminars that we'll be doing toward the end of each month this year. There might be one or two that I can't do because of my travel schedule, but most months. I really enjoy doing them. So um, it's, it adds so much richness to my life to um, <clears throat> have contact with people who are doing such loving work. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I was really nice to listen in last night. For sure. And I look forward to the rest of the teleseminars throughout this year. Yeah. It'll be enriching for me and everybody. Funny how it works like that. (laughs) (laughs) It is, isn't it? Okay, yes. and you said we do have some people with questions, and you reminded people that if they have a question, they need to push one. Yes, and uh, our first caller is coming from the 718 area code. Hi, Susan. I Hello. I wanted to check in with you. I called a few weeks ago after... Um, knocking my head and been taking that and I've seen so, you know, so much better, um, you know, results. And a few days ago I woke up with vertigo and the feeling I got was like, it's my body's way of processing healing and it got a little less, but then got a little more again. And I was just wondering should I just ride the waves? Should I? Is there anything that you can suggest that would be helpful for that? I'm not so sure what it means. Like, what is the body kind of? What's the message when someone has vertigo? If you could enlighten <clears throat> me, I would appreciate it. Vertigo is usually caused by disturbance to the inner ear. Okay. There's a part of the inner ear that's been described to me like the little bubble in the level that a carpenter uses. And it tells you if you are upright or not. So if you were to close your eyes, you would know where your body was. That's proprioception. And the vestibular system in your ear helps to focus that proprioception on how you're oriented. Vertigo means you don't have a good sense of orientation. Vertigo can be caused by infection in the inner ear. Okay. It can be caused by whiteouts. I 
stayed in a hotel in Switzerland on the top of a mountain. And I got up in the morning, opened the door, and went outside. It was a snowstorm. And I had instant vertigo. I did not know what was up and what was down, what was in or out or right or left. It was very scary. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, I had a very large building at my back. So, could you be experiencing vertigo because you hit your head? It's certainly possible. Mm-hmm. Okay. If, if, if so, then it yeah. should be self-correcting. Okay. In other words, you should have a couple of mild episodes of vertigo and then nothing at all. Mm-hmm. If some damage has been done, then your vertigo will get worse and will be incapacitating. At this point, what you're describing sounds like a brief episode. Okay. Is that true? Um, I mean, so far it's been five days, and it's like, um, I would say from all five days, three days were intense, and the other two was calming down. So. So when you say that you had vertigo for three to five days, <clears throat> were you able to stand? No. Um, when it were, was intense, I was Were you able to eat? It was, I had toast, so that was, and, and, you know, like, I had to, like, eat slower and kind of let things So process. someone was able to bring you some food? Yeah, yeah. You know, I called someone, I tried going to the restroom, and I was losing my balance, and everything was just spinning, so I said, all right, this is not working out. Um, well, five days doesn't them. sound brief to me, and three days certainly isn't brief either. Mm-hmm. Do you perceive that it's lessening or that it's getting worse? Lessening. Definitely lessening. So far as I understand it, the real risk of head injuries occurs within a day or two after the head injury. There's a risk of intracranial bleeding, which can actually kill you. Mm-hmm. There were several, I think you remember back, so several notable cases. Yeah. People who felt, you know, like, okay, went to sleep and, like, woke up dead. So mm-hmm. you, so far as I know, and you can check that out, you have passed the critical point. In other words, you're not going to wake up dead. From what <laughs> I know, you. and I'm certainly not an expert on concussions. <clears throat> so okay. that leads me to think that you are right, that you are probably within a safe range to um, go with it. The other thing that I would do in a situation like this is I would have someone help me or do for me, if I couldn't do myself, a search to see, suppose I went to a doctor and said, oh, my gosh, I have vertigo so badly I can't get out of bed. What would the doctor say? What would the doctor do? Okay. So what kinds of things would the doctor want to rule out? One of the first things that a doctor would want to rule out with vertigo is 
do you have a tumor in your brain? Mm-hmm. And in order to see whether or not you have a tumor in your brain, they would want to do a high-tech scan, a CT scan, or an MRI scan, sometimes both. Okay. So that could factor into when or if you see a medical professional, are you willing to go for a diagnostic scan? And if you're not, then you're probably wasting your time at the doctor's office. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because that that's my guess, and you can check that out and see if I'm right or not, um, is what they would want because they're using a lot. And I'm glad to hear that it's getting a little better. It's worrisome for me that you are... Losing your balance when you stand up. And that you can't. Thank you. Um, Can you drink nourishing herbal infusion? Yeah, I've been trying to. Like I drink a little bit and I I find that when I only drink a little bit, it's okay. Okay. Um, Like sips at a time. Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Because that will keep you hydrated and keep minerals and protein in your body. Okay. The other thing that I often think of in these kinds of situations is slippery elm. Slippery elm, okay. And my first interest in slippery elm was um, that a piece of slippery elm bark, two to three inches wide and six to eight inches long, was considered to be enough food to keep an adult going for 24 hours in an emergency situation, and that for up to six weeks. In other words, you can eat slippery elm every day for six weeks and still keep going. Nobody would say, yum, yum, this is great food, but it can keep Mm -hmm. you going. And so I was fascinated as to what could possibly be in this bark that was so, you know, helpful for people. And not only is the bark itself um, an incredible ally to digestion, it also, amazingly enough, able to absorb any kind of poison. Wow. And I have actually used it for people with food poisoning, where it seems to absorb whatever the food poisoning is very rapidly, and for animals who've who've mistakenly eaten something poisonous. Wow. And the slippery elm, like a drop of full or only, let's say, two or three drops? Like, um... Generally, I use slippery elm powder. Powder, Okay. I mix it with honey to make slippery elm balls, which can be dissolved in the mouth so that a slippery elm ball mm-hmm. will take 15 to 20 minutes to dissolve. It's ideal for people who don't feel like eating. Mm-hmm. The other way to do it is to make slippery elm gruel in which the powder is added to or you add water to the powder 
to make it the consistency of thick or thin oatmeal, whatever you like, and just eaten that way. Wow, that sounds really that's a just great idea. Wanted to do a new YouTube of me making Cyprian balls, which we did last mm-hmm. week. And then I rinsed out the bowl and the plate and the spoon that we had been using and made Cyprian gruel. And we had also been talking about goji berries. And we had gotten mm-hmm. up the goji berry tincture we had made the year before and taken some of the berries out of it. And so I took them in with the Cyprian. And that was quite tasty. I definitely want to try that out. Thank you. Um, is there is there um, any, like, herb that or maybe Cyprian would fit that quality too? Like if I have a little phlegm in the back of my throat, would that also help, like, dissolve that? Absolutely. Or it would. Yes. Okay, good. Yeah. Good. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Susan. I, I feel honored to have you to, you know, to check in with. Thank you. Thank you. Well, call back so that we keep in touch so that we know what's going on with you, okay? Okay. Thank Great. You Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. The next caller is coming from the 907 area code. Oh. Hey, Susan. I'm calling Hi. about an update concerning my sternum. I'm missing some of your words. Please say what you said again, something about your sternum. Yes, I'm give, I'm calling about an update on my sternum, a question and something metaphysical. Okay. Um, the last time I spoke with you, we were we were you were talking about uh quantum healing. And I sat and thought told me about the seatbelt going through me. And um, a week later, all my upper chest pains gone. I have no pain. And this was an injury that they, those doctors said I would have for at least seven months. It's a really great meditation. Wow. I mean, absolutely, there's nothing. I have no chest pain. One of the the many videos that we did for the new video course that Justine and I did, which I see as an expansion of the book Abundantly Well, is, of course, this meditation is in Abundantly Well, written out, and I spoke it. So there's a video of me saying this, so you can actually just close your eyes and let me guide you through it. Oh, wow. In the in the new video course, which isn't yet posted, but will be soon. Great. Okay. My second, uh, this is a question. Um, I was kneeling on my knee, and this is like two weeks ago, and I developed, I guess it's like a bursa, something like a, looks like a pocket of water size of a quarter on my the middle of my kneecap. I think it's my bursa. Doesn't hurt, but I just I'm concerned about that that water on the knee. Have you heard of something like that? <laughs> yes. Is it something that the, has knee, to be- the knees, of course, 
being in the middle there really take a lot of stress and wear and tear. It's a very rare human being who has never experienced some problem of some kind with their knees, from minor to major. To dissolve things that we don't want, what we usually use is some kind of oil. If you just want to use straight out like castor oil or olive oil, that works pretty well. If you want to put some herbs in it, red clover oil and violet leaf oil are said to be exceptionally able to dissolve things under the skin. Okay. There was an apprentice here with some kind of growth in the palm of her hand, which felt hard. It almost felt like there was a piece of wood embedded in the palm of her hand, and it was interfering with good functioning of her hand. I suggested that she do a castor oil poultice and that she do them, you know, it didn't have to be a long poultice, 15, 20 minutes, but do it approximately every 12 hours, and within three applications, it was completely dissolved. Wow. So that would get rid of the liquid? It feels like liquid. What we want to do is to encourage your body to reabsorb it. Your body made it and put it there in the first place, and it can reabsorb it and take it away. Okay. Okay, then I, I'll I'll drill. I, I was using that when I had a problem with my sternum. Um, there you okay. go. Okay. Now my last um, question: um, What's your? Do you believe in curses or generational um, ancestral? I don't know what. what something attached, attaching to the person. <laughs> I don't even know how to explain it. I just feel that I have been hit by some, it's just constant. I just have, it's, I'm constantly being hit by just weird, like I, I, I think I told you last time, I feel like a character out of a Bosch painting, that I'm like constantly being Something clears up, and then just like bizarre things are happen to me, and I'm not like, oh, I'm a victim. It's just, it just keeps going on like that. What I believe in is I believe in story, and I believe that as human beings, story is a real lifeblood to us, and that we have a powerful need to create story about what's happening to us. Just recently, within the past month or so, our dear friend and family homeopath, Susie Mazzoli, said to me, what limiting belief do you have? And I looked at her and I said, I have bad luck. And she said, really? I said, well, okay. Maybe that's overstating it. But I certainly don't have good 
look, I often say, if there's an accident waiting to happen, it's waiting for me. Which sounds like what you're saying. Exactly. If there's a nail sticking out in the barn, I will get scratched by it. So I said, well, you know, maybe it's over overkill to say I have bad luck, but I certainly don't have good luck. And she said, all right. So since you've identified that as a limiting belief, how are we going to expand that? How can you reword that story? Because that's a story, isn't it? Yes, it's definitely a story. And we live by story. We live by our story. So my story is I don't have good luck. So what we reimagined was... A wonderful statement that I use have used daily since then. I have the luck I need. Hmm. And you know what that has actually led me to understand is that I lead a charmed life. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's free of insult, injury, or problems. But by golly, by gosh, what I need to get through that insult, injury, and problems is there for me. Yes. I have the luck I need. Maybe you do too. Yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, I live a, a lot, a lot. I spend a lot of time over in China. And um, my professor over there would tell people, because I knew everything that was going on when I was living at this one professor's uh, studio, and he would tell everyone, everyone, believe anything she says. She tells fantastical stories. But they were all, if I did talk about if I told the story or explained something I wasn't making it up it was it was real but to him it couldn't possibly be real is that what you're saying well I think he I don't know he yeah he kind of that was one aspect of it there's other aspects that I'd be on here for forever if I sat down and discussed <laughs> my life over there. But yeah, mm. there was, that's, you know, that's a very important part of mind medicine, right? Of energy yeah. medicine is that we understand that we live by story, we create stories, and we get to choose what story we're living in. So right. if it works for you to have a bad spirit who's attached to you and your family. And that's a story that that you like, then carry that story on. But if it's a story that isn't satisfying to you anymore, you can change it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's time to cut that thread. Thank you for calling with your wonderful questions. Thank you, Susan. Green blessings. Good night. Green blessings. The next caller is coming from the 860 area code. 
Hello. Hello, 860. Hi, Susan. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I just want to say I'm so excited. I'm finally going to sign up for the Green Blessings Mentorship, and I've been waiting a very long time, so I'm very, very excited about it. Oh, I'm excited too. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do have a question. So I um, I really have very low blood pressure, and I tend to get really low blood sugar as well. I'm kind of on the thin side, and I drink nourishing herbal infusions, and those feel wonderful. But a lot of times when I add um, like adaptogens or um, I'm thinking of the mushrooms, um, most of the adaptogens reduce your blood sugar and reduce your blood pressure, and I cannot tolerate them that well. I start to get dizzy or my blood sugar starts to crash more. And then last week, I my first herbal well, let me Let me just stop you okay. for one moment. Sure. Any plant that reduces blood pressure or reduces blood sugar is not an adaptogen. Because the definition of an adaptogen is something that normalizes. So it would, if I had lower blood pressure, it would normalize it for me. Correcto. La Hawthorne is a classic adaptogen. Okay. It raises low blood pressure and lowers high blood pressure. Herbs are not drugs. Drugs have a direction of action. Okay. <clears throat> there are herbs that can be made into drugs. It can be made to have a direction of action. The purview of an herb is to have a sphere of action. So that what becomes can be brought up and what's high can be brought down. Okay. <clears throat> so, 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 what kind of adaptogens have you been using and in what forms and why? So I started using some of the um, powdered mushrooms, um, like reishi and um, cordyceps, and I started to feel a little bit lightheaded and dizzy after using those. They came in a powdered form, and I was adding them to, like, tea and stuff like that. Um, those adding them the to what? To tea or coffee. Mm-hmm. You know, just a, just a powdered one. And um, they were good at first, and then I started to feel a little bit uh, lightheaded and a little bit dizzy. And it's, ha- it's you know, it, I, I know it's happened to you before when I used to take herbs in the wrong way after. I was going to say, yeah. one of Susan's rules is don't take powdered herbs. Yep. Because your body doesn't have a chance to deal with it. Better, certainly better in tea than just swallowing it in a capsule. That's mm-hmm. certainly a good idea. But I would, my sense would be that for you, the kind of adaptogen that would help you would be bone broth. Yep. I love bone broth. I just got to make it more often. <laughs> yes. Yes, make more when you make it and then freeze it. Yeah, and I do feel great after having it. Exactly, because that has deep heat in it. And from what you're saying, there's a a, a deep cooling in your body that I think you are doing your best to warm and to fill. That is incredibly true. <laughs> I'm I'm always trying to warm up somehow. Yes. Yeah. 
Is it so, the fact that both? Okay, sorry, go ahead. So I don't think that the mushrooms um, are that helpful for you. Mm-hmm. Berry-like adaptogens, like the goji berries, the amla berries, or even elderberries or hawthorn berries. Should I, I make like a hawthorn berry tincture or? Uh, yes, hawthorn berry tincture. That's wonderful. Or a tea with... with um... Tea of hawthorn berry is also fabulous. A hawthorn mm-hmm. like dandelion is one of those plants that you pretty much can't go wrong with. Okay. As long as you're not taking it powdered. Now, I will admit that Eagle Song showed up once to pick me up. I'm so appreciated her picking me up. And she knows that she's to pick me up with a quart of infusion. She handed me the quart of infusion. And I said, what is it? She said, it's hawthorn leaf and flower. She's Miss Hawthorne. She loves hawthorn. And I love her love of hawthorn. And so I took a big slug of this hawthorn leaf and flower infusion. And it was so astringent. I don't think I could get my mouth open for an hour. <laughs> Fortunately, the berries are not that astringent. But she said it was her own hawthorn leaf and flower that she had gathered because I've had the commercial stuff and it's not nearly that astringent. <laughs> it took me quite by surprise. Now, also, with hawthorn, can I? I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. Any of those and um, and blueberries. And so, more, again, my sense is that we want to get these things more into your diet rather than seeing them as things to take. So I'd rather that you go to the store and buy portobello mushrooms and cook those in olive oil and eat them than take reishi. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I've never had a problem eating them. Exactly. Yeah. Um, What are your thoughts on the apple cider vinegar? Because a couple of times that I've used it on salad, it seems to really drop my blood sugar, and I know that that's one of – should I use a different vinegar when I make my herbal vinegars or – it's just so it's so tasty. I don't know of any physiological mechanism that would cause apple cider vinegar to cause an abrupt drop in blood pressure. Okay. So maybe it was just what I ate then. It's I'm I'm not questioning you. Yeah. But I do want to say that in general, it's extremely difficult to really feel when your blood pressure changes. And so perhaps what you're noticing is something else, but calling it your blood pressure. Yeah, that's possible. It's like a dizziness. Yeah. So, I mean, why did they call high blood pressure the silent killer? Because nobody knows that they have high blood pressure. Right. So, given that, I, it's hard for me to imagine how someone could feel a small amount of apple cider vinegar on a food changing their blood pressure. Simply because it's something that's already hard to feel. Mm-hmm. And not just for you, but for for all of us. So you feel a little dizzy. Um, it's like dizzy and sweaty, and so, you know, it usually happens like a couple of hours after I eat.
Well, let's think about what's going on. As you chew the food, and it goes down into your stomach, most food is kept in the stomach for about four hours. Cold liquids go through very, very quickly. Any cold liquid is through the stomach and into the intestines and into the bloodstream in five to ten minutes. Warm liquids may stay even longer in the stomach. It's one of the reasons why a good way to lose weight is to have a cup of soup or a cup of tea at the very beginning of the meal because that warm liquid liquid will stay in your stomach and give you a greater feeling of satiation. Mm-hmm. So for most people, foods that they have consumed are still in their stomach about four hours after ingesting them. The chewing and swallowing, however, and the rhythmical movements of the stomach do encourage peristalsis throughout the entire digestive system. So as our food is in our stomach, it is being kneaded and moved about in the stomach. Thus, the rest of the intestines are also moving, and peristalsis is going on all the time, whether we're aware of it or not. And this can then cause sensations that, because it's important to have a story, people connect to what they've eaten. When, in fact, the, what it's connected to is, is that they ate. Okay. I want to tell you something that may be totally out of left field and may actually have a bearing on what's going on here. I trust my guides, so we'll go ahead. I believe that there are two very strong energies or forces in all life. And I call one of them the life force, and I call the other one the soul force. The life force comes into existence when the male genetic material and the female genetic material get together. When that happens, plant or animal, whatever it is, now there is life force. And that life force is tied to that form. The life force is not independent of the form. And when the form is no longer in existence, the life force is no longer in existence. The soul force exists before, during, and after the time of the life force in the organism. So there is a soul force before conception. There is a soul force during, after conception, and birth, and life. And the soul force continues on after death. If you were to say to the life force, you have a terrible disease and the only way we can cure you is to decimate the planet and kill everything except you, life force would say, yes, that's what we're doing. Life force is inherently selfish. It is for itself and that is exactly as it should be. If you were to say the same thing to soul force, soul force would say, oh, please, don't bother. I'll just get a different body. Goodness gracious. (laughs) 
When we are being born, life force and soul force are kind of shifting around because they've had a relationship while we've been in utero that's changing now that we're being born. And soul force, I'm sorry to say, is incredibly stupid. (laughs) And it's, you know, soul force actually is kind of autistic. It just takes, takes things totally at face value. So if a woman is giving birth and she's going, oh, 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 soul force says, oh my gosh, I'm hurting her. Oh, how awful. Oh, I should get out of here. Now, the vast majority of women are going to make at least some exclamation of pain while they're giving birth. Although I've met a few who've trained themselves to go, oh, oh, it feels so good. Ah, ah, it feels so good. <laughs> you, whatever story you want. <laughs> but, and then, of course, we also have to admit that sometimes, you know, there are situations in which a woman is giving birth and she doesn't want to be giving birth to this child and she doesn't want the child. But I'm not saying that if there's an argument between soul force and life force that it's all the mom's fault. I'm saying that it could be totally soul force misunderstanding. But what happens is that then there's a overshadowing of the soul force on the life force. And it becomes hard for the life force to get what it needs. If this is ringing any bells or making any sense at all to you. It makes a lot of sense. It's really giving me a lot of goosebumps. Yeah. You can sit down with your soul force and say, come on! (laughs) What? Get out of the way! You have a zillion lives. Let me have this one. It's the only (laughs) one I get. Shh! Off, 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 off. You have plenty of time. Get away. Well, there was a lot of stuff surrounding my birth, too, so it's um, it really makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Claim back your life. You're not getting rid of your soul. You're just asking it to give you some room. Okay. Okay. That was really beautiful, Susan. Thank you. You're welcome. So much. And, and I'm, just, I'm just so excited to, to do the mentorship. I, I just... Oh, we're so lucky to have you doing this uh, every week. We're so I'm so lucky to have found all your teachings, and it's made such a difference in my life. So thank you so much, and thank you for that beautiful answer. It was uh, thank Good you. Night. Green blessings. All right. I'm gonna remind the callers that they need to press one to ask a question because we do not have anybody else queued up at this moment. Wow, all the problems of the world have been solved. Everybody's outside looking at the full moon. Go outside Must and look be. at that moon. It's so beautiful. I will take one of these uh, questions off of the email. It says, hi, Susan. I cannot afford your courses, but I am very interested in healing and herbal medicinal knowledge. You shine to me. If you have any articles or information that you are on healing, cancerous or potent free radical defenders, I would appreciate that. Also, my friend has been in a wheelchair for 27 years and told me her shoulder is going out. 
any herbal concoctions or ligaments and socket damage I could recommend for socket damage. Sorry, <laughs> this is written. Um, for socket damage, I can recommend her. She is so independent and hasn't needed a sliding board to get in a car and drive since her rehab. Thank you so much and look forward to hearing from you. Many years ago, Justine, my daughter, went off to Paris to study at the Institut Hotel Management International. And one of the things that she was required to do way back then, very outrageous, was she had to create a website. She was told that in the future, if she was working in the hotel and restaurant industry, she would be working with websites. And although this was far enough back that it was, they were still offering you, you know, like 10 hours of internet a month. They were telling their students they had to learn to do this, so she did. She made a website for me, and she made a website for her. When she graduated and came home, she posted those websites, put them up. What she found was that they only worked on the software that had been provided to the school. And that really upset her. Made her call me up and say, buy me this software and I will create the website of your dreams and everybody will be able to access it. That was many years ago and there are now, I believe, close to 8,000 pages of free information on my website. I have to say that when the first thing somebody says to me is, I can't afford your courses, it doesn't open my heart. It makes me wonder how it is a person has created a story, since that's our theme tonight, a story of deprivation. I would truthfully much rather hear, I don't choose to afford anything that you offer. My belief is that any one of my books, which can be had for, I think the most expensive one is $30, that any one of my books, if studied carefully and thoroughly for a year, will teach you a huge amount about herbal medicine. I have a YouTube channel, over 150 YouTubes, completely free. So, please don't write me and tell me you can't afford my courses, because you can. I've had students who wanted to do a correspondence course who paid me $5 a week. Because it was important to them. So when someone says to me, I can't afford your course, what I hear is, it's not important to me. I'm happy to provide generously at my website, at YouTube, here on the Blog Talk Show. But please don't tell me you can't afford my materials. They're not that expensive. Yes, you have an incredible amount of information out there that's that's available, so more so than I think any other herbalist puts out, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Unless I'm unaware of another herbalist. But we did have two callers queue up with questions in the meantime, so we will go to the caller in the nine zero three area code. 
Hello. 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 Hi, Susan. Good evening. Um, I I want to share that this this call this evening's calls has really really been um, very interesting to me. Really, everything that you do it hits me pretty hard. And um, I'm not often tongue-tied, but I swear every time I go to talk to you, I feel like I don't know anything. <laughs> um, what a blessing why that... to be in beginner's mind. Ah, such freedom. <laughs> I look back yeah, at it's... my first book and I say, if only I could be the woman who knew so little, how wonderful she was. <laughs> well, thank you. That makes me feel a little bit better. I just, I, I do. I appreciate everything that you do. Um, I've listened to a lot of your YouTube videos. My young daughter and I love to look at them. She especially loves seeing Monica Jean um, participate, and, and my daughter helps me do a lot of stuff, and she gets very excited about helping me. And, learn. and so it's, it's, it's been really, really wonderful. And so some of the things you were saying earlier has kind of inspired me to um, hit the button there and ask you um, for some guidance with um, my birth story for my daughter. It it um, wasn't wasn't what I had planned, and it went very very south. And um, I have struggled with dealing with it and just accepting that it, it was meant to be that way. And she's she's healthy, and I have her, and I should just just move on and just let it go and it doesn't seem to let go and she asked me the other day if I would tell her her birth story and I literally could not like I didn't know how to say it so that it would not be traumatic so I've got to figure something out and I thought maybe you would have something for me I hear you you envisioned that when it came time to give birth to your daughter, that it, things would go along pretty normally. And were you planning to give birth at home? Yes. So you got how far along at home? 24 hours. And, um, I mean, they, they, could, they thought they saw her crowning. And the problem was that what they saw was not her head. It was her hip. So I was transferred um, emergency to the hospital where they gave me an emergency C-section. But then I was blessed that it was people that I knew, uh, some clients of mine in my therapy program. And so um, they had me in surgery in 20 minutes from the time I arrived. So that and was a you were And you remained conscious when they did the section and the baby was brought No. In. No. No, that's... That's totally part yeah. of my problem is they, they put me out and they tied me down. Or I should say Bedward. they tied me down and then they Bedward. put me out. Bedward, Bedward. <laughs> yes. Yes. So it's important, my teachers believe, to physicalize your anger. And it certainly makes me angry to hear that they knocked you out and tied you down. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to believe that it makes you angry too. Mm-hmm. 
death. And I, I have nothing. They they knocked me out, and I have nothing until I woke up. And when I woke up, I was still tied down, and I knew I didn't have a baby in my belly, but there was no one there. And it still is going to make me cry, and it's four and a half years later. Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So two things. One, create a way to physicalize your anger. Okay. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross preferred a rubber radiator hose in a Manhattan phone directory. (laughs) In Japan, there are storefronts where you can go and buy glasses or cups or plates, and then you open a door and you go into the back area where you can throw and break those things and yell. Um, Alisa Starkweather had women here at the Wise Women's Center during her workshop go out. There are huge cliffs here, enormous cliffs. And she had the women go out and push the cliffs and scream. It was so moving. It was so wonderful. Okay. Find a way to physicalize. Not just think about it or make noises. Most people, when they make noises, uh, make angry noises, hurt themselves. Right. Right? I really don't want you to hurt yourself with your anger. Okay. I want you to tell your body that this is not an anger that's going to remove an obstacle. That's what anger does. Anger removes obstacles. And there is no obstacle that this anger is going to remove right now. Is that right? Right. 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 I don't know if you heard me reading at the beginning of the show about Mm -hmm. a woman who was sitting at the end of the hall with her dead baby in her arms because Mm -hmm. they wouldn't listen to her. Right. And that's part of why I said, no, this is the call that I need to share this with you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that and then... I hope this will make sense to you what I'm going to say. You need to go and take care of the you who's crying. Mm-hmm. You need to be the time traveler to go back to her and say, ah, it's really awful right now, but in a couple of pages it gets better. Jeannie Houston always taught us you need to know the whole story so that when you get to the terrible part of the story, you can say to yourself, yep, this is a terrible part of the story. But three pages from now, something really cool happens. Right. Right? Right. Right. So there's part of you who's stuck back there being upset. Yes. And you can travel back through time and say to her, come with me. Okay. I value your tears and I value your grief and I value the pain that you're feeling. But let's not live here. Am I getting that wrong? No, you're, 
you're you're right. That's that's exactly what I need to do. That's that's exactly what I need to do. I just haven't figured out how to do it. That's. But I I, I think you saying to physicalize my anger that might be what I'm missing because I've done everything from physical therapy to emotional therapy for the past several years trying to find this space and it's gotten better. But when my daughter asked me that the other day, I just literally was like, Nope, it's still all right there. Yeah. And make up a different story. Okay. Make up a different story, right? Here I am mm-hmm. telling my favorite victim story to a new person who hasn't heard it about how when I was but a babe, could not yet walk, I slung my arms around a dog who bit me in the head, requiring me to be taken off to the hospital, 32 stitches in my head, and then mm. a month of rabies shots in my belly. Ho, ho, hee, hee. Mm. What a great victim story. See, you feel sorry for me. It's such a good victim mm. story. It's the best world's best victim story. So Jean Houston is walking by, right? And I see mm. her out of the corner of my eye, and I see her stop. And then I see her walk backwards. And she turns, and she says, have I ever told you how disgusting that victim story is? <laughs> mm. She said, Artemis. Artemis, Artemis sent her hound to claim you when you were but a babe. Try that on for size and walked off. Ooh. Oh, How I like dare that. she? How dare she turn my victim story into a story of power? The nerve. Ah. Uh. Yeah, but you know what? I love that. <laughs> I think I'm just, I'm stuck because I don't know I don't know where that power is and and I got lost in it. Your daughter has such a big energy that she tore herself out of you. Knocked you out and tied you down. <laughs> well, what is that? <laughs> she is she is a very large personality. She's amazing. She is I, I thank the powers that be every single day for her. She is so amazing, and I am better for her. That that you can better. tell her about her birth. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's good. She's That's how good. old? Four and a half. Yeah. She doesn't need any of the details. <laughs> no. Right. Okay. Four. Right. Okay. Yeah, it was incre- it was an incredibly exciting time, and there were really good friends of mommy's there who helped us out, and mommy got to ride in an ambulance. It was quite the scene. All right, right, right. Okay. You didn't okay. fail. You didn't fail anybody. Okay. Right? The fact that the medical profession took advantage of you is not your fault. You weren't wearing the wrong clothing or talking the wrong way or doing the wrong thing. Mm -mm. You didn't have a strong enough helper. Right. That's true. 
But we never really know how strong our helper is until we need the help. And then if they're not strong, we go, oh, well, hmm, gosh. Like yeah, a stronger yeah. helper could have said, oh, wait a second. Right. This is not such an emergency that we need to knock her out. But you didn't have that, and that's okay, too. Right. 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 Because right. If, he, was, he was scared. If you were to do this again, you will have a stronger helper. Yes, yes, uh, that that is true, although I will say that, that the discussions about that and doing it another, uh, uh, giving it another go, I, I, I've said flat out, there is no way I can do it until I resolve this. <laughs> <laughs> You'll never like, resolve it. No, oh crap. <laughs> we'll never resolve this. No, okay, what's this the better is not word? Resolvable. You will integrate it, you will weave it into your story, you will draw from it, and you will build compassion from it. That's true. Insofar as you can free yourself from blame, shame, and guilt, you will have that to share with others. Okay. And you will not blame, shame, or guilt trip others for what happens to them. Right. Right. And I, I certainly, I certainly don't, I don't want to do that. If anything, yeah, if I can, if I can figure this out, there's, there's a rather large birth community here that yeah. I'm part of, and if I could give some hope to others to, to yeah. who deal with, yeah. And I. Truly think that that is one of the biggest gifts that we can give anyone is to say, "There's no shame here, and there's no blame here, and there's no guilt." Right. You can see where you could do it better in the future. Good. I'm glad you see a future. Right. But looking to see what we can change in the past. Mm-mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And my mother said, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Right. <laughs> yep. Always. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. 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 This, this is, thank you. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart because I need to, I need to adjust this. I need to integrate this into myself. I need to weave it into the rest of what I am and what I'm going to become. So. Yes. Yes, because it is part of you, and it did happen to you. And again, let me say, although it's not obvious to you, what's in the way of your acceptance is blame, shame, and guilt. That's exactly it. Yep. Yep. Kick them out the window. Excellent. Yes. I got it. Okay. Super. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you for sharing intimacy. Really. Blessed. Thank you. Green blessing. Good night. Good night. All right, the next caller is coming from the 951 area code. Oh, that's me. Hi, 951. Hello. Hi. Hi, my name's Alicia. And what's up with you tonight, Alicia? Oh, okay, good. Um, the reason I'm calling is um, I'm... I'm so happy to be talking to you. Oh, my gosh. First of all, I just want you to know that you have really changed my life with your nourishing infusion. Yay. Um, (laughs) 
Yeah, I have been sick for the last 10 years. I'm 51 years old. And after drinking your herbal infusions, I am normal again. <laughs> Yay! Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, so I'm really grateful uh, for everything that you have done for women. And um, I'm, I'm out of breath, sorry. I was, like, running up my stairs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Take a moment. So, Catch your breath. It's fine. So, <sighs> um, so my question today is I have a, a husband who has been healthy his whole life. Um, he turned 51, and about exactly a month ago to the day, he had been on herbal infusions with me. So um, he had no health problems, but... Um, last month, I ended up taking him to the emergency room because his blood sugar was at 720. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, of whoa, course, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. He never had any type of symptoms um, except for he just got really sick towards the end where I ended up taking him to the hospital. Um, you know, and he thought at one point that it could be the herbal infusions. And I said, oh, my gosh. I said, if, if Susan heard you right now, she would <laughs> make you bite your tongue. <laughs> I said, because that's what helped you get, that's what helped him actually, uh, now that we look back, that's what helped him not be in a coma at 720. I, I was going to say, and that he was not in a coma is because he was drinking his nettle. Yes, he was. Yeah. Drinking his metal. Yeah, absolutely, his because metal. that is definitely coma level there. Yeah, that's coma level, but it's because of the infusions that he he didn't um, he didn't go into coma. Yep. Wow. He, I, I have him on red clover, and he was on nettle and red clover, and and he we he also we just did a come free. Um, we we drink all the five ones that you drink all the time. Yay! Hey. Yeah. So he's now taking some drugs. Um. Yes, he is taking metformin. Metformin. Uh huh. A pretty he, benign drug. Yeah, that's what we hear. Yeah. As a matter of okay. fact, there are actually people who aren't diabetic who take it because it has a reputation for increasing longevity. Wow. Okay. Because he was really scared about taking that. Because he's never taken any medication. I know. I know. I know. But as far as drugs go, it's a pretty good one. And given where his blood sugar was, drugs are well suited to help him transition back to a place where he doesn't need the drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. He's, he's averaging right now since he's gotten out of the hospital for the last two weeks, he's averaging uh, sugar levels of 80 to a hundred, just very consistently. I like um, this much better. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and we're drinking Linden for the heart. I heard you about my husband. So yeah. So I gave him Linden and then, and then I just, I just wanted to, um, ask you a question, um, tell you something else, another story about his mom, who I gave her some nettle. And this lady had arthritis where her fingers were crippling and she could not walk straight. And now she's standing up straight and she's 
not running, but I mean, not walking, but running everywhere. Nettle is really amazing. Yeah. She's like, oh, my gosh, whatever it is. She tells her daughter, she has five daughters, and she says, she says, I can't believe my five daughters didn't figure this out, you know, and you're my daughter-in-law. She just, she loves me. I'm like, she's just, you know, because she's, she's able to, to be so comfortable now, and she doesn't have all that pain she used to have before. No pleasure, no treasure. It's one of the themes tonight, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Our daughter... Our daughter's our daughter's gonna be delivering in the next three weeks, so she's gonna have a midwife, and um, I've got the shepherd's purse ready to go. And okay, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. So, yeah. I just I just wanted to thank you so much, so much for everything that you do, and um, you know, I I I've been taking the infusions. I've had a, I was having a lot of problems, um, and I started taking your infusions and the um the tinctures like ladies mantle uh shepherd's purse can't live without it and now my hormones are so regular i mean i I can't believe how regular they are they're just i'm doing really good (laughs) how wonderful that all around us as gift of the earth grow these green blessings it's just i am so thankful i am so grateful that literally without us having to cultivate anything at all the the very things that we need to stay healthy are given to us in abundance yes i i have tons of dandelion growing right outside my door that i never knew about until i started (laughs) listening to you you know about a year ago, because my daughter, you know, like five years ago, she was telling me about you, and, and she would buy these big, big containers with tons of herbs in them, and I, I would say, what are you doing? And she'd tell me, well, I told you to listen to this lady so you could understand, and, and I wouldn't listen to it. I wouldn't listen to it until finally I just got tired of my issue with my hormones going crazy, and I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it. You know, it doesn't hurt to try, and I started listening to you, and I, I literally... So was it to the point where I was listening to you about six hours a day? I kid you not. Just nonstop. Oh I mean, yeah. Yeah. I was Oh, uh, well, thank you. I'm very, very honored. Yeah. Uh, yeah, somebody once asked me what was the longest that I had ever talked. I said, well, I did a 30-day-long workshop in Germany where I taught from 10 in the morning till 10 at night. With breaks, of course, for lunch and dinner, and didn't repeat myself. So that's the most I've ever talked in one place. Is that the time? Is that the time that you ate that piece of chocolate that you went to go teach a bunch of midwives? Oh no, this was this was a, a live-in uh, group in Germany. Oh okay, okay, okay. Yeah. So, well, can Rebecca, I ask you are there any uh, uh, Rebecca? Are there any other people? We're just kind of you know chatting and having a good time because you have made me think that there aren't any other people. But let me check in with you, Rebecca. You actually, so there what love? Move on. If, there's just one other caller in queue. Okay, well then I, we should move on, and I will say okay, green blessings and good night to you, and talk to this last person before okay. we get to our exciting and wonderful guest tonight. All right. The caller is coming from the 615 area code. Hello. 
Hi. My name is Paige. I've called in before, but it's been a long time. And I just have to say I've missed you. I have missed your shows for the last month and a half. And and after listening to this one, I'm just feeling like I just walked in to my home after being gone for six months. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm just feeling mad. Um, sad, depressed. I think it's just winter blues. I'm irritated. I'm maybe it's a full moon thing. I don't know, but it's not like me to be in this space. Um, I think partially it's because um, I'm I'm feeling like I well I have to I have to reorganize what I'm. What I feel like is my calling here, um, about three and a half years ago, I, um, well, let me just back up and say, I'm, I've been a songwriter and performing artist um, for the last 25 years, and I, I felt a really strong calling in my spirit to get off of the road and move to my farm full time about, yeah, about three and a half years ago, and to start really getting back to the land and um and so i have been growing my herbs and um about two years ago i decided to start growing herbs not only for myself but to incorporate it um into selling at my local farmer's market and that little business was kind of just a little something to get me by and um really enjoying connecting with the community and really felt like I was serving my community by offering these beautifully grown and harvested herbs that I'm, you know, that I'm growing. And, and then I got a word from the FDA um, that now I have to um, have a manufacturing license in order to offer You weren't offer actually my selling herbs. the herbs. You were selling products you made from the herbs. No, the herbs. You were selling the fresh herbs. The dried herbs. The dried and processed herbs, yes. I Okay, so they were processed in some way. Well, they're considering drying them as a process. In mm-hmm. fact, I'm not the farmer in my community that's dealing with this because even the um my my neighbor Alan is growing um you know, uh salad greens. And they're mm-hmm. considering him washing the herbs and drying the herbs, you know, just like drying them off, as a, quote, process. That's it is. Process. It is. So, it yeah, is so now. Process. That, that is exactly. the primary place where foodborne pathogens enter. Agreed. And I now have to have a manufacturing license to do that. So I'm feeling like, okay, well, you know, my husband and I, we, we very state to state, but most states have a threshold. And if you sell under the threshold for some states, it's a monetary threshold. And for some states, it's a number threshold. In other words, less than 100 yeah. units or whatever, then you actually yeah, don't have to have that license. But now we do. As of January 1st, we do. And it is a federal law, not a state law. So, and there's no um, threshold? I've already talked. And there's no threshold? 
There's no, no threshold for small people? No, it's it's not. It's um, it actually any we we still have these um, laws in place for people that want to sell jams and jellies. That's called home based processing under a five thousand dollar a year kind of thing. Right, that's that what I mean by not, threshold. Yeah, it does not apply to to salad greens and herbs and spices, and it is federal. And so now I'm finding that I have to totally reinvent myself. So. Um, you know, I, we've put up a greenhouse, so now I'm kind of shifting gears going, okay, well, I'll sell plants at the farmer's market, medicinal herb plants, and I'll just grow them. And, and I'm planning. But, but dang, Susan, like for three years I've been working on this little baby, you know, um, growing this little project, and now it's it's completely turned topsy-turvy and and I'm just irritated. I'm mad as hell because I've worked my ass off doing this. I'm a woman farmer, and I'm doing all of this work pretty much by myself, manning this homestead by myself, um, except for my husband's here on the weekends. But anyway, it's just hard, and I'm just tired, and I just want to kick old man Winter's ass right now. I'm so sorry. I, I hear you. So... Let's sum this up for others because I think yes, this is thank very you important. For hearing me, by the way. You will never make a living by growing herbs, gang. Nobody is ever going to make a living by growing herbs. That does not happen. If you want to make a living by growing herbs, it's going to be like raising chickens. It's going to be thousands of them. You're going to have oh, to go real big if you want to do that, right? Just like you can keep 12 chickens, or as my friend who I originally said, don't keep chickens, you know, you know, and, and she said to me, she said, you know, this year I'm going to get 50 chickens so that I don't notice so much when the coyotes and the eagles and everybody goes off with them. I said, yeah. So growing herbs is not a way to make a living. Any time that we are Selling herbal product, we have got to get all the appropriate stamps. And so for most of us, that is not a way to make a living. For most of us, if we are going to either sell or tell, telling is a much better way to make a living than selling. Well, I'm no – I mean, I love to – send people off to your websites and your books and pretty much all of my friends have purchased your books and, you know, watch all your videos. I'm not a, I'm not a teller and I'm not really a seller. The grower that, you know, I I mean, I've got a, and you have to have batch numbers and you have to know what plant is in there from. Yeah. And I keep all that. There you go. It's it's really not that hard. Safe manufacturing, you know, are not that hard. Basically, it's just bad word, bad word paperwork. <laughs> it is bad word. It is bad word so, paperwork. I know. <laughs> it's not my strong suit. I'm a total right-brainer. I right. But, they, but I understand the need for that. Right? The need for that is that if something happens, we can trace it back. Yes. I like and that. And I understand that. I like too. that protection. Yeah, I do too. As a consumer, I like that because yeah. I don't grow all the herbs I use, so I'm glad those are in place. Right. Um, but 
Um, yeah. Anyway, that's where I am. Uh, yeah, I, they just did a sweep of um, weight loss and sexual improvement supplements. Yeah. And 80, I think 80% of them did not contain what they were supposed to contain and or contained like actual drugs. Yeah, I know. I, I read that those articles. Uh, yeah, the AH. Yeah. Yeah. So, There's a, you know, it, it, yeah. so hey, nice that, nice that we have some checks out there because it can be a real free-for-all in this arena because there aren't very many checks. Agreed. And, um, and you know, and I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, I'm doing everything by the book. I'm doing it the right way. And I care so deeply about the plants more than anything. Really, that's what hmm. brought me into this. And to get to service my community with beautiful um, food, right? Food. Because I'm basically just, I've been growing things that are nourishing herbal infusions, right? Um, generally recognized as safe herbs. So, and now I'm not going to be able to do that. So, so you've been growing nettle and oat straw and red clover. Correct. And um, yes, and then I've also been growing motherwort and yarrow and raspberry and, um, you know, a myriad of other, like, annuals, calendula and, you know, beautiful. That's beautiful. Beautiful blossoms. And like we that. have 10 seconds to wrap up, and then I need to introduce Ebony. Okay. So uh, any advice on what you – or can, can, can you just get me through to spring? Maybe that'll change my attitude. Hypericum, hypericum, sunshine okay, in a bottle. Thank you. Sunshine Pick in a bottle. Some hypericum and cuddle up with it. <laughs> thank you, Susan. <laughs> you are such a dear. I'm so grateful. Have a wonderful evening. Thanks so much for sharing with us tonight. Okay. Green blessing. Bye. And it is my pleasure. To introduce Ebony Janice Moore. She's a womanist scholar and an activist. She does community organizing work specifically around black women's body ownership as a justice issue and around equal access to education and pay for women of color in the U.S. and in several African countries. Ebony Janice Moore works as an activist focusing on decolonizing everything, specifically authority, education, and mindfulness, and discussing the ethics of excluding hip-hop from a conversation about what is sacred and sight-worthy. Ebony Janice Moore has a Bachelor of Arts in Cultural Anthropology and Political Science and a Master of Arts in Social Change with a concentration in Spiritual Leadership, Womanist Theology, and a Radical Justice. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Susan. It's been beautiful to hear you talk for this past hour or so. I'm so glad that you were able to tune in and join the show. Let's start. By answering that question that we know is uppermost in many minds, what's a womanist? What? Womanist scholar? What's she talking about? Yeah, so womanism is um, a creation actually by Alice Walker in her book many years ago, um, In Search of Our Mother's Garden. She defined this term womanism. Um, and, and a part of the definition, it's a, it's a four-part definition, but a part of the definition, she says, 
womanism is to feminism as purple is to lavender. And so it's definitely in relationship with feminism, but it's an intentional relationship um, that black women specifically are having with, um, it's this social theory that um, based on the the history of black women's everyday experiences, so the the work to uh, to be free and justice and equity and um, you know from this woman perspective, but also the impossibility of excluding our black experience in that. So that is my very blanket definition of womanism. Thank you. That that really helps us get a sense of of, of what that is, and I. Remember, you know, also reading it, you know, way back and thinking, ah, oh, this is such a more powerful word. And it's a word that's harder for people to pretend they don't understand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, you're yeah. a womanist. It's, you know, there's, there's not much wiggle room there. It's pretty clear what you're for. Absolutely. Right. And that is in the definition, loves women. Sometimes sexually, sometimes not. So you can't not be confused about what it means to be a womanism, uh, what it means to be a womanist. She loved women. Um, it, it is a black, it is black women's work. But what on earth does hip hop have to do with any of this? Yeah. So I, a part of womanism, a part of my own womanist work is really about decolonization, and. Um, and ultimately, what I mean by decolonization is I'm understanding that everything, education, mental health, mindfulness, um, authority, everything is colonized, meaning that there are a group of people, um, more specifically, it has been in America, cis uh, white men that have set a standard. But the reality is that standard, there was something that existed before they created the standard for each of those, for education, for learning, for, you know, uh, for everything. So if we are to decolonize it, then that means that we are um, pulling back our dependency on those standards and suggesting that there are other truths, there are other realities, there are other ways of being. Well, hip-hop is important then because it's an ethical question. If if there if we are unable to, um, I come at it from a theological perspective because I am a minister as well. So if we can look at certain things and consider it sacred text, we can look at the Bible, we can look at the Quran, we can look at the Torah, we can look at these different um, these different texts, and we can consider them sacred because someone has authorized them. Well, then hip hop, there is wisdom there, but we miss it because we have an, we have a bias leaning assumption about who it means to be a, a participant in hip-hop culture. But I found so much wisdom in hip-hop on a regular basis, and one of the things that I do to prove it is that people can generally agree that the Bible is sacred text and that there's wisdom in the Bible. And so I take lyrics and I, and I line them up next to Scripture and I prove, look, you would have missed this if you weren't paying attention, if you weren't intentionally looking for the wisdom, but there is so much wisdom there. Decolonizing, very confusing concept to many people. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's somewhat confusing to people because it's a little hard for them to understand perhaps what we mean by 
colonization. What, is, what does that mean? How, how can we say that mindfulness has been colonized or that something else has been, you know, take, what, what, I think I understand what you mean, but let me ask for others who might not understand if you could explain that a little more. Okay, so when something has been colonized, that means that a group of people, we, we will call them settlers, come to a place or an idea or an institution or a situation, and they establish control over it. And then as a result of establishing control over it, that means that the economy, that means that money is exchanged and that money, like they will have power in that space. That means that the standards, what I was just talking about, the standards, the standards will be set by this particular group of people. So we'll use mindfulness, for example. We understand that mindfulness, let's think about yoga. yoga we understand that yoga has been colonized and it needs to be decolonized because in the United States of America, if you are going to get licensed or certified to teach yoga, 90% of the spaces for you to go to to actually be licensed or certified to teach yoga, which is, which is an, an ancient practice that existed for people of color for years before it ever had any relationship in Europe and or with Europeans. But you would have to go to a white person in the United States of America, 90% of the spaces that are considered credible um, in order to be certified. So that means that this space, this, this practice has been colonized. The, the other part about it is even though it's an ancient practice, the people, the traditions, they're still alive. Native, Native American people are still alive. Um, these Indian people are still alive. People that practice this as their religion are still alive. So, it's, so what, what, is, what makes it that the larger percentage of people who are in charge of certification in these areas are white people? That means that that space has been completely colonized. That means that a group of people who did not own that reality came in and said, now we're in charge, and these are the standards. And so this conversation about decolonization doesn't mean that white people should not have access to those practices. It means that if we start to peel back um, the layers of uh, story around, you know, who gets to be in charge and who gets to set the standard and who gets to have power in these spaces, power over or power with, like even those kinds of conversations, that is decolonization work. It's at the very least asking the question, who authorized you to be in charge of this space where people existed for hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before you showed up? I agree with you, and um, they're not colonizing yoga. They're colonizing the individual person's ability to charge for teaching yoga, which is different. Well, they're not saying what yoga is or isn't. They're saying who can charge for it. The truth of the matter is that anybody can go out there and teach yoga. Anybody can. And I think the decolonization has to happen right there where we say, who needs a license? So, that well, you just say we need a license. I say to people, 2020 eyesight, what does that mean? And most people don't yeah. know that 2020 eyesight means how far a 20 year old white man, how much he can read at 20 feet. 2020, 20 years old at 20 feet. When I learned that, I said, aha, maybe I don't want to seem like a white man. And I threw away my glasses. Because I realized 
that my eyesight had been colonized. So, yeah, but I definitely agree that um, if we go deeper into the conversation about decolonizing authority, it absolutely is the question of why do you have to pay money to get certified to teach this period? So, so that is a part of it. But even it's still a colonized practice as well because when the images and the visuals that are most largely represented are not of the people that this practice is indigenous to and or of other people of color, then there is a perception that it's not for certain people. So even that is a mental, like, colonized reality as well. So it's definitely not the practice. We're not changing, you know, specifically what A, B, C, D, E, F, G means within this practice, even though some, in some ways it's skewed, in some ways um, it's distorted because, um, there's a conversation that people are having about whether or not it is sacrilegious as this is certain people's religious practice. So there is that conversation as well, but I definitely agree with you that we do need to interrogate why are you paying, why do you have to pay money to get licensed to teach this practice and that. And so, yeah, definitely that is a question. As a matter of fact, I have fought my whole life basically to keep the colonists out of herbal medicine by doing as much as I can to prevent mm-hmm. any kind of licensure within herbalism so that mm-hmm. we are well, yeah. free, you know, to keep it ground level and to keep it in a womanist perspective. And it has been kept very womanist in the United States, which is not something I can say for other countries over the past 25, 30 years, which some of which mm-hmm. have fallen very soundly to the scientific tradition. So... Mm-hmm. So we're talking about colonization, and we're talking about how this happens, and it's not just a sailing ship going out and planting a flag and saying, we claim this colony. It's something that happens to our minds, and it's something that happens to our bodies. And your work is to decolonize, and you're helping us to decolonize by, first of all, recognizing how this happens, and that it happens in all of our lives, and that it's very, it can be very subtle. Um, but I think that you're also working through um, a level of justice and caretaking, too. Would you talk about that? Yeah. What, what you just said, I, I appreciate the work that you're doing to make sure that um, herbs don't get colonized or as colonized as, you know, other in, industries. Because I do think, like, you know, I see it as well, you know. There is an effort, obviously, to take it, to try to monetize it in a way. And I think I just wanted to say that because I think it's important that we have these conversations because this determines access. And when people don't have access to people like you, because, and I heard you talking earlier about, like, all of the free content or all of the ways that you're willing to um, work with people who want to work with you so that you can make sure that you're keeping this accessible, that to me is doing intentional decolonization work. It's making sure that you're saying, like, I don't own this knowledge. This doesn't just belong to me. I don't own these resources. These don't just belong to me. I'm doing the work to make it as accessible to as many people as possible, and so I appreciate you for that. Um, Thank you, Ebony, and I think that that is really um, how people colonize. They colonize by saying, I own it now. Yes. So the work of decolonization is to say, we all own it. 
Yeah, you don't get to be in charge of the sky. You don't get to be in charge of the water. You don't get to be in charge of the ocean. Like, who told you that you could show up and say, this is now mine, and we regulate this, and we determine, you know, that that is, I think, just to make it more clear what it looks like. And when it comes to industries, you know, it's very similar. Um, you know, for for doctors, you know, for many indigenous practices, that was their spiritual practice was to be a healer. And so when you come in and you regulate it or you say only certain people or certain, you know, standards have to be met in order to do this, then you demonize at the same time, you demonize other groups of people who have not practiced the same way that you've practiced or learned the same way that you've learned. And so I'm, I'm just wanting to, like, be very clear, especially for your listeners, why decolonization is important. Because, of course, like, as a black woman, I'm speaking from this black woman's perspective and experience. But for all of us, exactly what you said, like our minds have even been colonized and that we have bought into the idea that somebody was in charge of us. Somebody had to come and give us permission to do certain things. Somebody had to come and say that, yes, you are allowed to go, you know, in this direction or believe this or do this. And, um, and that harms us because we don't get to show up as our whole authentic self, which leads to the question that you're asking me around really just about, uh, about wholeness and body and how all of this plays into that as well. And it's, and it's for me, I think about um, the scripture, and I said that I'm a, I'm a minister, I think about the scripture that says the earth is groaning out with labor pains, waiting for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. And for me, I feel like when we have believed that somebody had to give us permission to be ourselves, <laughs> somebody had to come and authorize us or certify us to do the work that our soul must have, then it puts us in a position where not only are we harmed and hindered, but the other people, like there are people around us waiting for us to show up as our whole selves. And in in the meantime, they're in pain. And a perfect example of that is with the work that you do, people are actually physically sick in their body sometimes before they meet you. And then as a result of meeting you, because you have shown up and you have been revealed in this earth as who you're supposed to be and, and, you know, obviously continuing on that process, you're able to heal people. It doesn't even have to be the laying on of hands. It's just because you showed up. But if we believe that somebody has to give us permission to teach or somebody has to give us permission to preach or somebody has to give us permission to write or whatever it is, this, you know, inner thing that's in us to, to go out and be that, then we'll never we'll never do that, and then somebody's not healed or somebody's not restored, somebody's not, you know, enlightened or set free as a result. So all of that, I think, shows up in the body in the form of anxiety and stress and depression when you just cannot tell the truth every day, the, tr- the truth of who you are, and when you don't have that liberty and that freedom. So it does all work together. Whole spirit, soul, and body is impacted by this experience. And the body, our physical body, our corpus, is a very important part of our story. We've been talking about story tonight. And when our bodies as women become colonized, and our bodies have become colonized, then then we become confused at a very deep level about who we are. And this goes on for all women, but it goes on, I believe, in special ways for black women. Mm-hmm. Could you speak to that for us? Yeah, so that's that's the the importance of 
um, womanism to me. It's having this specific emphasis on um, black women's holistic experience. And what that what that means is that the black women have are the only group of people um, that have been used for both reproduction and labor as a result of chattel slavery. So not just not just labor, like you know, as a as an enslaved person in the field or in the house or whatever the work was of that that person of, of that woman, but also then like the subjugation of her body, you know, being raped and and or being used literally for reproduction in order to um, continue the legacy of enslavement, you have to have more babies. And then those, you know, so so the only person on the, the only living being human um, that has been used for both reproduction and labor. And it's, and it's so then it, there's like a comparison of like the black woman's body. Um, Dr. Williams talks about this from this eco-womanist perspective, which I feel like is very, relevant to the work that you do as well. But from this eco-womanist perspective, like uh, like comparing it to the way that the earth is subjugated in this way, that somebody has ownership, people believe. Like there is a group of people that believe that they have ownership of the earth. <laughs> and so they will, um, they will make you get a um, license to grow herbs in your backyard. <laughs> and, um, and, and you will be confused by who told you that you were in charge of the seed, who told you that you were in charge of the dirt, who told you that you were in charge of, you know, who told you that you were in charge of that. And so this, this very unique history of black women is very similar to that, similar to, you know, to the cattle. You continue to make babies so that you can continue to get the meat from them, so that you can continue to get, you know, every everything from them. And so from, from that history of, you know, subjugation that black women have experienced, when the suffrage movement happened, there was um, this cry from, from women just in general for equity. There was this cry, but there, there, there was this intentional exclusion of the black woman's um, specific experience, and that's where you get those joiner truths coming from. Um, she likely didn't use this language, ain't I a woman? That's, that's kind of, you know, to prop, prop the story up higher, but... She's basically asking the question, like, two black men. She, yeah, she's a local voting. girl. She lived a few miles from where I live. Yes, and she, and she you know, she was, an edu- she was educated. She knew several languages, so she certainly wasn't saying, ain't out. That wasn't the language of the time. But when it, <laughs> the story is told, yeah, when the right. story is told, ain't I a woman just so, so you know, it, it, to keep repeating that, it's, you know, it's catchy. So, but the question that she's asking overall, though, is don't you see that, um, like, like to white women, like no one has ever, you know, helped me up in a carriage. And but ain't I a woman? Like we're we're talking about, um, you know, equal rights for women. But but at the time, white women in the suffrage movement, even even your heroes, they were not actually listening to black women's specific experience. And and so this, so the black woman was saying that to white women, but also saying to black men at the same time, wait a minute, you got the right to vote. There wasn't, there wasn't men's work and women's work when we were just in the field together. We literally were having the same, the same work, but, but ain't I a woman? And so that, what you're asking about the body and this specific, very unique experience of black women is for years now, there's still this, um, this trope of the mammy or the Jezebel or this hypersexualized um, uh, creature or this um, 
all these babies and, you know, and the welfare queen. And in reality, none of those tropes are actually true. They don't. Black women are not actually having more babies. In fact, black women are having reproductive issues at a higher rate than any other group of people. So black women aren't just having more babies than everybody else. Black women aren't just on welfare more than anybody else. Black women aren't these tropes. But it is this history in the U.S. of black women um, and stories being created on their bodies that has caused, um, that's why it's a justice issue. When you hear a black woman talking, I have a, I just have a heavier voice. The voice, my, my voice just have a, has a lower registry and I have a heavier timbre, and that is the case for a lot of black women. And so I'm talking, and then if you disagree with me, you say, why are you so angry? I'm not angry. I've never changed my tone. It's a, so that becomes a body justice issue because what I'm doing in my body is now a threat to you, even though I've not done anything. And or um, and or just showing up like in 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 largely white spaces, having to try to maintain what my facial expression looks like, so that people don't worry about whether or not are you angry, are you mad, what's going on with you, what are you thinking about? And so it's this constant um, uh, what what uh, it's it's called this mask. It's this constant mask of like, am I safe here? What do I need to be doing with my body right now to seem less threatening? In, in corporate America, in the church, and, you know, whatever the experience is. And so black women are constantly having those experiences from this gendered uh, perspective, but also there's an intersection of race, race issues that's making it even more, you know, relevant as well for black women. This is Susan Weed, and you're listening to Ebony Janice Moore. If you want more, how can they get in touch with you, Ebony? <laughs> that was I am on Instagram and Twitter um, and my website. So all three is just um, at Ebony Janice. It's E-B-O-N-Y-J-A-N-I-C-E. And so that's on Instagram and on Twitter. And my website is the same, EbonyJanice.com, E-B-O-N-Y-J-A-N-I-C-E.com. Wow. I could sit here and talk with you all night. There are just so many topics and then the ones that we get into I want to go deeper and deeper because I love talking to people who think about things and who don't just follow what they're told but who really sit down and say, hmm, okay I hear you. Is Does that match up with my experience? Thank you for doing that. Thank you for bringing that attention to your womanist um, spirituality and your work for all of us on this planet. We are very, very blessed. What's a Black Girl Mixtape? Black Girl Mixtape is a multi-platform lecture series created to center and celebrate the intellectual authority of Black women. And so it's just doing more decolonizing authority work. It's uh, help lifting Imagine a TED Talk specifically for Black women. And it's turned into a docu-series. I just got back from Paris last month where I went to Paris and having this um, across the diaspora experience of what does it look like to do feminist womanist work in the world. So yeah, black girl mixtape is, I think it's important work and, um, and, and we are all learning from each other in a very real way. And if they get in touch with Ebony Janice, then they can connect to black girl mixtape. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is so fun. We have come, it's hard to believe, to the last few minutes of the show. Oh, my goodness. 
And I like to give you this last little bit of time with this question. What do you want to leave in the hearts and the minds and the bodies of everyone who's listening to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I'll just re-emphasize um, that scripture that I shared a little bit ago, that the earth is groaning with labor pains, waiting for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. And even if God is not the the word that people would use, um, or most high, or spirit, or universe, that the earth here, for those of us living in these bodies, in this flesh, the earth is literally just in pain. We can see it from the state of this, this world. The earth is in pain, waiting for us to show up with the answer. And the answer and the answer is just in your authentic living. There is an answer in your authentic living, no matter how simple or complex that may appear to be. And I think that's powerful. And and the universe, you know, or God or spirit or whatever, however it is that you define, um, you know, a, a higher existence or, or the collective existence of us all, the universe is better and it's healed and re- is restored when you just show up and just give your one drop. You, you may want the ocean, but just give your one drop. So that's what I would leave the people with. And I just want to quickly say thank you so much for creating this type of platform to talk about your, the work that you're doing but also and, and to teach, but also to be healing in, in several other ways. I really appreciate you. And we appreciate the work that you are doing, Ebony Janice more womanist scholar and activist. Take a deep think about what Ebony has talked to you about. Take a really deep think about colonization. Where are you the colonist and where have you been colonized? Thank you so much for helping me reweave the healing cloak of the ancients And, hey, Rebecca, thanks for helping put herbal medicine back where it belongs as people's medicine. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Good night, everybody. Good night, everyone. Good night, everybody. Good night. Thank you.